Do you love wine? Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. How much Oregon wine have you tasted? Today we're talking with Iris Vineyards winemaker Aaron Lieberman, based out of Oregon. We're talking all things wine and Oregon and the science behind it and of course food pairings. We're also going to go deep into winemaking and talking about the trial and error and lessons in creating his award-winning wine year after year after year. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Iris Vineyards winemaker, Aaron Lieberman. Aaron, uh, thank you so much for your time and welcome to Flavor Report. I appreciate you stopping by. Thank you, Joe. I'm happy to be here. So there's so much to go over with you because you're in a great area and you've, you're an award-winning winemaker. Uh, last year, we had the privilege of covering uh, your 2022 of the McMinnville Wine Classic. Your Pinot Gris won Best in Show and Best White Varietal. You know, according to press announcements, it was the first time ever for a Pinot Gris. Um, I'm just curious... What do you feel was it, what what was it about that bottle in that year that brought you so much acclaim? Well, I think certainly part of it is happenstance. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is we, I think maybe one or two years prior to that, we had entered some wines into that competition and not the Pinot Gris, I don't think. Uh, so the the vintage we won that on was the 2020. And I think our Pinot Gris is fairly consistent. So I actually personally felt that the 21 vintage was better than the 2020 mm -hmm. um, by a little bit. And so really what I think is going on there is that in our growing area, um, in the Eugene, like Southwest of Eugene, uh, we um, have our vineyard in what's called the Lorraine Valley. Um, we're a relatively high elevation vineyard compared to the rest of the Willamette Valley. Mm. And so I think we get a lot more, um, you know, what people call hang time <clears throat> on our Pinot Gris, which allows more flavor development and preservation of acidity, as well as slower and lower accumulation of sugar. So we mm -hmm. ended up with a higher acid, lower alcohol wine that's very expressive in terms of fruit flavors. I want to kind of let our audience know a little bit about your background and what brought you to where you are today. So obviously, I would love to hear about your uh, your education in, in mm -hmm. soil and winemaking. But the one thing I'd really hope you'll touch on that I found fascinating is your your Peace Corps time. And then the fact that you, you know, how you worked in Guatemala and, and what your soil education, what you shared there, the lessons you learned there. So if you could kind of give us a, a summary of what you've been through and touch on that Peace Corps area as well. Sure. Uh, so as I was finishing up my bachelor's degree at Oregon State University, I became involved with uh, 
a couple of different grad students on their helping them with their research projects, basically. And um, I had already um, at the beginning of my junior year switched my major from pre-vet to uh, crop and soil science. And um, so, so the projects I was working on with these grad students were involved soil research. Um, and one of these grad students in particular had been in the Peace Corps and talked about it frequently. I also had a professor who had been in the Peace Corps. And um, so they both inspired me to kind of look into that and, and eventually do it. Um, also, my my uncle was uh, one of the first Peace Corps volunteers, and he served in Morocco. So that that also is inspiring. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up going to Guatemala, and uh, the project I worked on was called Corn and Bean Seed Improvement and Post-Harvest Management. Uh, so what we were doing is uh, trying to kind of counteract the invasion, if you will, of commercial corn seed uh, into Guatemala in particular and Latin America in general. And it's replacing of the, uh, what we call the land-raised varietals or the traditional varietals of corn. So we were working with those traditional varietals to try to improve the, their performance in the field, basically, um, just by just by selecting the plants that were growing well and were the most disease resistant, and then going back to those plants and selecting the ones that were yielding the highest, and um, you know giving us you know three cobs per plant instead of one or two kind of thing. Um, and and that had been, I think that program started maybe four years before I got to Guatemala. So I was the third volunteer to uh, be working with these farmers and and keeping that going. And we were really showing some really good results. So let's switch back from Guatemala back to your area, and let's talk about your region. And um, you've got some great soil types that we'll get into as well, hopefully. But let's talk about how your region and how you use the soils in your region to bring such delicious flavor characteristics and aromas. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting thing as well. And, and I kind of glossed over that when talking about that Pinot Gris. Our vineyard is, we do have some Jory soils. And I think most people who know about the Willamette Valley know that Jory is the preferred soil uh, in the region, uh, particularly for Pinot Noir. And while we do have Jory, our vineyard is dominated by uh, what's called bell pine soil. Now, bell pine is, is kind of an analog of Jory, but it's, it's um, formed in um, sedimentary rock rather than basaltic rock or volcanic rock. So there's there's some significant differences in the chemical makeup of the soil, I think, and that probably also contributes to the flavor difference in, in our Pinot Gris compared to some others. Interesting. 
Um, we also mentioned so so Belpine Jury, and I'm, I may not pronounce this correctly. Is it Dupee or Dupay? Dupee. Dupee. I guess because that's also connected with the Pinot Gris. When I the last time I visited, what I heard overwhelmingly from the winemakers was part you, you have to love a fickle year after year. There's no consistency, or maybe not no, but there's less consistency and more every year is so different. There's certainly a um, desire, I think, on our part to maintain some level of consistency. Sure. On the other hand, I think philosophically, I, I want my wines to represent the area that they're from and the varietal from which they're made. Mm. Different weather during each growing season is part of that representation. So while we do, uh, based on the weather and the level of ripeness of the fruit um, and what we're tasting in the grapes before we bring them in, we will make some adjustments to how we do the vinification to, to try to push it in one direction or another to, to be at least somewhat consistent. Got it, got it. So this is either everyone's favorite question or the next of favor, which is let's talk about the wines themselves. Um, your vineyard is nice enough to send over some samples, which we enjoyed, thank you. Um, I don't know what you have in front of you, but are there any specific wines you want to touch upon as far as the process and the flavor profiles of them? We have obviously your Pinot Gris, we have a Pinot Noir, a red blend, the Chardonnay, and the Brut Rosé was phenomenal. So thank, thank you. Incredible work. Um, do you have a, a, I don't want to say a favorite, because I'm sure it's a, that that's the wrong word <laughs> to choose, but is there one that you want to start with to talk about? Um, sure. Let's start with the Pinot Gris. It, okay. I just got back from uh, a little marketing trip to Reno and San Jose and fairly consistently, especially in, in San Jose with people tasting our Pinot Gris, I, I got the this comment of uh, white peach in that wine. And, mm -hmm. and that's not something I'd really heard a lot of before. I always think of our Gris as being uh, a little bit of pear and uh, well, maybe a lot of pear and a little bit of uh, kind of red apple peel um, and quite a bit of citrus notes in there. Um, so that was the first time I'd gotten the, the stone fruit comment. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, so, and in speaking about stone fruit, mm -hmm. more commonly I'll get that comment about Chardonnay, whether mm -hmm. it's whether it's our still Chardonnay or our Blanc de Blanc, um, you know, there's often a, a note of peach or nectarine in that. Um, so yeah, and then let's see, the other wines were the Brut Rosé and... The Brut Rosé, correct, um, and then the Pinot Noir. The Willamette Valley? Uh, correct. Yeah, well, and, and the the house, the, the the red blend as well. But yeah, the Pinot Noir twenty one from Willamette Valley. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, a lot of people will remember twenty twenty and how that vintage went for us. Um, I refer to that year as the worst year of my life. 
and probably, so <laughs> probably you, some other people would as well. You have to realize we can't say that and not expand a little bit. So let's say <laughs> I don't want to give any post-trauma, but let's talk a little bit about what made it such a bad year. Yeah. Um, so we went into it, into the growing season, and by June, uh, well, the end of June, so following bloom, we just had beautiful weather during bloom, and fruit set was really good, and so I started to feel like it was going to be a really great vintage, and and that continued, you know, up through Verizon and we're seeing a, you know, like a really modest crop load and smallish berries in the, the Pinot Noir, which leads to, you know, a wine that's a little more concentrated, a little more fruit forward. Um, and then um, it was uh, right around Labor Day, I think that the, the major fires started and we started to get the, the smoke come into the valley and, and settle in for, um, I think it was 10 days to two weeks of, of smoke. Um, so that was extremely disheartening. And uh, we, in, in the Willamette Valley, that was really our first experience with that level of damage to the fruit, uh, mm -hmm. that kind of damage. So a lot, a lot of people were scrambling and, and worried and ultimately a lot of wineries in the Willamette Valley didn't produce Pinot Noir in 2020. Um, <clears throat> we did and, and we made less than we had planned. Um, we kind of picked uh, some vineyards that we thought had been less affected and decided not to pick other vineyards that were more affected. Mm -hmm. And then we we applied some some techniques and we did. Uh, I was aware of smoke before, and I was, uh, you know, paying attention to the research that was being done. And we applied some of the um, ideas that that we knew about to mitigate the smoke effect. When we talk about ideas to to mitigate it, um, was it more tried and true? This is going to work and help, or was it a lot of risk taking? And if it was risk taking what if you can reveal it what helped the most there well there are two things that helped the most and one of them was um we sent some grapes to california to go through a process called flash and uh, basically what that is is it's a kind of a it's a kind of thermo vinification method where the must is heated uh, i believe to about 80 degrees celsius and then pumped into a vacuum chamber and so that hence the reason they call it flash is that under vacuum water boils at a much lower temperature mm. so the water in the skins of the grapes flashes to steam in the the vacuum chamber and that steam carries with it uh, a lot of bad things like the um, 4-ethyl guaiacol and the guaiacol and and those things 
<clears throat> that are responsible for the bulk of the the smoke effect that you might find in a wine. Uh, so that was one thing we did. The trouble with that method mm -hmm. is it is particularly for Pinot Noir, very destructive of varietal character. Uh, so we only did about a third of what we produced with that method. And then uh, following vintage and, and some aging, we did some uh, reverse osmosis to, uh, to remove some of the uh, smoke effect from the rest of our wine. I see. And that was quite effective. Okay. So obviously after a year like that, a vintage like that, not to be cynical, but it can only get better from there. That, <laughs> right. that was pretty, that was pretty tough. So mm -hmm. going back to the bottle we're talking about now then, when everything, I should say everything, because there's always struggles, but when there aren't major difficulties, it gives you a chance to really let your, your fruit blossom. And so let's talk more about after that really, really tough year. Yeah, well, and so, so um, to finish off my comment about 2020, um, I um, write kind of at the tail end of vintage, I, I had appendicitis and had to have surgery for that. And then as I was about recovered from that, I, I got the COVID. So right at the end of 2020. So yeah, that, that's a tough year. That yeah. <laughs> ain't always possible. I'm right. So to hear that. Um, yeah. So back to your question about the better years. Um, I, I think we were talking about 21 or leading up to talking about 21. Um, and fortunately, uh, 21 and 22, I think were uh, very similar to 2020 and, and how the vintage started and ended up. We, we had um, just some, some really beautiful fruit and, and beautiful wines. Uh, I think I'm really excited about 22. Mm -hmm what we have in barrel right now. And um, I was the talking about the uh, stone fruit comments on our Pinot Gris. Mm -hmm. That's the 22 vintage that we were showing. And um, and I think it's just a, a really beautiful wine. Very nice. Um, I have one more question about flavor, but after that, I would love to geek out with you more about soil, if you don't mind. But, sure. So, so often, so many people approach wine from a food and wine pairing point of view. And I would love your thoughts on, for certain bottles, what you find. I don't know, I, I'm not sure how much of a chef or a home cook you are or not, but do you have any suggestions for great food pairings for some of these bottles that are mm -hmm. about to come? Sure. Yeah. Um... I think with our Pinot Gris, I really enjoy seafood in particular, uh, but I also think it's it's really good with salad, mm. uh, even uh, even in like a fruit salad, you could have Pinot Gris with that, and um, and I think it pairs really well with with those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, Rosé. Uh, well, I, I always say that. Uh, if you're making a dinner and you're not quite sure what wine to serve with your dinner, uh, 
sparkling wine is always a good bet and it's a crowd pleaser and um, it, it'll go with dishes from salad to steak or pizza uh, just because of I think the the acidity of sparkling wines makes them really versatile in uh, any kind of food you know fatty foods in particular are um, uh, pair well with more acidic wines I think uh, kind of a palate cleansing thing absolutely yeah and uh, Pinot Noir I really feel like our Pinot Noir lends itself to kind of the traditional pairings that people talk about like salmon um, and what else do people talk about <laughs> um, yeah salmon chicken salmon. okay more lean yeah. cuts um going back just because I, I think do you see yourself more science or art i feel like you might be more comfortable on the science side would that be an accurate thought yes so is there if you were going to grow anywhere obviously willamette we love it uh when you're going through a year but from from growth to harvest etc from a soil point of view what what are the first traits or elements of the year that make you that have you start either you start to get excited saying it's going to be a good year or mm -hmm. uh oh thing this is going to be a challenging year what are some of those tip-offs that you notice that tell you what kind of year it's going to be i think like last spring we had uh, a couple of fairly severe frosts uh after bud break mm -hmm. and it was it was an interesting year in the end uh, because of that, and we ended up uh, to I think everyone's surprise with a a vintage that was quite nice and yields that were not really affected by the frost. I mean the vines bounced back with their secondary and tertiary buds, um, set fruit, set a really good crop. And um, and we got we got a nice batch of wine out of it. I so I mean that that is sort of a mystery to me, like how that could happen, where you know everybody's expecting uh, we're, we're really low yields or no yields and uh, stressed vines um, and a, and a late harvest, uh, which can become difficult in the Willamette Valley. Uh, you know, if we we get into harvest in the rainy season, it's uh, you know you're you're sometimes your hand is forced, and you know you the the grapes, you know when they start to get ripe, mm -hmm. the skin soften and and they become more susceptible to botrytis and um, other kinds of of bad things that you don't want, uh, but um, twenty two is nice. And uh, we we weren't really forced uh, up right up until the end. We we had um, I think it was around October twenty or twenty five. We had the, mm -hmm. the first big rainstorm come in. Uh, so we did we had I don't know twenty percent of our fruit still hanging uh, around that time, and and we brought 
most of that in before that big rain. Okay. But I think we had really good ripeness even at that point. Yes. Uh, clearly, as a winemaker, I, I always see it as when you walk into your tasting room, it's like a celebrity walks in the door. Everybody, everybody wants to say hello to you. Everybody has questions for you. And we were talking earlier about how the last two years have, have made Zoom wine tastings a new thing. And I'm curious from your point of view, uh, what's, I don't want to say a favorite question, but is there a common surprise or a unique experience you have, whether it's in person tastings or via Zoom, that as somebody who is so often behind the scenes, do you have a favorite part of that wine tasting process? My favorite part, without a doubt, is just when I see somebody tasting my wine and you know, the look on their face uh, when the, that shows me that they're really enjoying it. And then they'll have some comments sometimes about it, you know, like, wow, this is amazing or something. And that's that's my favorite part. It doesn't happen every time somebody tastes, but <laughs> but often enough. And it's it's a real pleasure to me. I think that's a big reason why I'm in this industry is that it what we do makes people happy. Oh, and I love that. Well, then I'm I'm gonna push that a little further because I love that. And uh, so many people equate wine and especially sparkling wine to celebration and to the the human experience without getting too philosophical and too deep. Mm -hmm. Do you have? a certain memory of including either your wine or someone else's wine in a great celebration. Yeah, there, there are uh, several memories. Um, my father and I had a, a wine business of our own uh, that we ran from about 2002 to 2015. And at one point we were I don't recall what year it was. It was maybe five years after we started. We had a um, a celebration, uh, kind of that revolved around the fact that we had this gotten this company going, and we had a bunch of family members and other people who were important to us um, out to one of the the better steakhouses in Portland, and um, <clears throat> I ordered a um, Pelini Montrachet off the menu and uh i i still remember that wine quite vividly and how impressive it was and i and i think that sort of changed my mind about chardonnay mm. in, in some ways um and we you know in oregon there's a lot more chardonnay coming out of the willamette valley now uh which i think is a good thing but it's still been a, an uphill battle i think for producers to get uh get that chardonnay wine past what we call the gatekeepers the the distributors you know so you you go to a distributor and you're like oh nobody you know everybody drinks california chardonnay or white burgundy um white burgundy on the east coast and california chardonnay on the west coast it, generally speaking and so people, they don't know about Oregon Chardonnay. And when you say Willamette Valley, everybody thinks Pinot Noir, which is great. Uh, but we've 
we've kind of pigeonholed ourselves with that. And there, there are a lot of other nice things that can come out of this valley, um, like Pinot Gris and Chardonnay. Um, <clears throat> so we, we have some, some work to do on the market and with our publicity to sort of let people know we're, we're more than Pinot Noir. Very well said. And I, I mean, I think your, your company, your brand, and the work you're doing is absolutely doing that slowly but surely. My guess is because you have a reputation for being science focused and bringing great results, you might attract a team of people who want to learn more from the knowledge of this, the science-based knowledge you have. Is there a more common problem that you found a solution to that as a team, you realized, wow, this is a big deal either for myself or you, you, you created a learning lesson for someone on your team? Oh, well, I think that happens every year. And it's usually, I mean, sometimes it's the same thing sometimes, uh, but oftentimes it's a different lesson. Mm -hmm. um, and let's not assume that I know everything uh, because I learn stuff every year as well. And, and I think that, um, I don't remember who it was who said, uh, when, uh, something about when you stop learning, you might as well die or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, um, I know that's not the quote, but it, it, anyway, it, it's the idea. No worries. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, one of the things that I really stress with people who are, are working for me during harvest and whether they're permanent employees or, or just for harvest is the importance of fermentation temperature. And it's with white wine, with aromatic whites in particular, mm -hmm. uh, you really have to keep the, keep the temperature under control. It, it, you know, yeast like to get hot and, and ferment fast. And so you have to keep those ferments cool, whatever the, the method is, if you're in stainless with, with jacketed tanks, or if you're in barrel and you're uh, taking the barrels outside at night or, you know, wetting them down to, to keep the temperature down. Super, super important. Um, with the white wines you get you get a temperature or a fermentation that's too hot you end up with a wine that's um like generic white wine it's it doesn't have varietal character left in it or not very much mm -hmm. um so that's that's something i stress a lot and then when you talk about red wines the style of red wine that you're making is so dependent um, on a lot of things, but temperature is a big thing. So if you do a cool ferment on a red wine, you're going to have a red wine that's fruit forward and aromatic, but it's not going to be very extracted. It's not going to have a, a big tannic uh, backbone to it. Uh, to and, and so in that way, I think it would be out of balance. Um, so, so we do like with our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, we do a couple of different fermentation methods that end up having different peak fermentation temperatures. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then we blend them together 
to get a wine that that uh, is crowd pleasing, easy to drink, uh, but also balanced. As we wrap up, are there any topics that when you're talked when you're when you're interviewed and, and asked questions about that you're interested in that you think is a big is one a more important aspect of winemaking that gosh people just never ask you about and you wish you could shine more light on this idea this element this part of it if so what is it and let's let's talk about it sure uh i think uh right off the top of my head i would emphasize uh the fact that i don't do this alone and uh if i didn't have a team behind me um doing the right thing and and uh you know supporting production uh in the winery and and starting with our vineyard and our vineyard manager who is amazing um and grows amazing fruit uh all the way through to uh the marketing team selling the wine or promoting the wine and the sales team selling the wine um it's uh i think it's really important that or it's good for people to understand that it's it's really a team effort uh yeah i'm the winemaker i get the publicity i get the recognition um but there's no way i could do it by myself because you've lived such a complex so many vintages and you've worked for so many different companies and at this point in your life if if you i'm sure you talk to young winemakers all the time um is there a common mistake that you see young wine winemakers make and or is there one huge piece of advice you would give a young winemaker a big thing would be and i've made this mistake when i was a young winemaker is if you're about to do something to a wine and you think you know what you're doing but you've never done it before make a phone call you know ask ask another winemaker you know that's maybe has had the experience and has done that um you know you've got you have a five thousand gallon tank of wine or ten thousand gallon tank of wine and you're gonna do some kind of adjustment or um whatever uh that you've never done before get some information first fair enough i i building network building community and reaching out to those with either more experience or more diverse experience yes and you know i i think most in most wine regions it is a community mm -hmm. and people are happy to share uh their information uh to to help the next guy out because ultimately if if we're all making really good wine in the Willamette Valley, that enhances our reputation uh, as a region. Uh, so I think it would be a, it would be a big mistake for uh, us not to share information. Very well said. Uh, so obviously, we can find you on your. We can find Iris Vineyards on the website. We can find you on social media. Uh, do you do you want to tell us the website and where you are on Instagram, TikTok, any of those social avenues? Sure. Uh, our website is irisvineyards.com. And our handle on, I think, pretty much every social media site is at Iris Vineyards. Beautiful. And I just wanted to wrap up by saying uh, earlier you were talking about how 
you wanted the area to be known for more than just Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, et cetera. Hence, I don't say introducing Pinot Gris, but be known for more. And you're doing that. I think year after year, the work you're doing is bringing more attention to the region and to Pinot Gris. And so you're accomplishing that. And uh, absolutely. So thank you again for your time. And it was, it was great to have this conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate getting to know you and uh, congratulations on the attention you're bringing to the area and to your vineyard. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate your time. Fantastic. Aaron, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you to my team for your production work. And last but not least, thank you to you, the audience, for tuning in and listening. See you next week.